You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. A story of two men taking on the system. Hello and welcome. It's The Film File and I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And we're both coughing our way through this particular show. So uh, stay with us for, uh, well, but not necessarily for you, but a huge amount of editing for Andy. <laughs> You've had a cough all week. I've had a cough all week, and we've not been in each other's presence. Last week when we were recording, I was coughing a few times, but it's gotten worse since. It's that tickly constant in your throat and sleeping. What's sleep? I'm not allowed to sleep, apparently, because my body, as soon as my eyes close, goes, you know what? Coughing fit for five minutes. How does that sound? Yay! I tell so, you why uh, I couldn't sleep. I'm very tired. I'm very <laughs> bloody tired. Let me tell you why I couldn't sleep. Boy, I was cold. Uh, I was I'm fine with so the cold. cold the other day. I just wrapped loads of blankets over myself, including my head. Uh, we went out for the day to uh, up to Leeds, just to, uh, like a shopping uh, trip. Uh, and this was on Saturday. And it was so cold. It was really misty and it never lifted all day. And it was uh, really spoiled the day because both of us just were like freezing, heading into every available uh, coffee shop just to get warm and then step out again because we were so darn cold. My solution is I just don't go out. Yeah, it could have, should have helped. Should have done that. Uh, retrospectively, that should have been the plan. Other than health, how are things? Uh, okay, okay. Ticking over um, work-wise, it, it's great this time of year. I love this time of year because this is all the awards-heavy films get released in the UK. And so every film that I watch this week have been good. Spoiler alert for the, for the reviews later on. <laughs> yeah, because you have that thing, don't you? You've got to watch all the uh, all the award films. Yeah, well, the Oscar Oscar nominated Oscar films. Are like to, and next week is when they're going to be announcing the final. Well, by the time this show airs, oh, um, they'll they'll have announced what the final shortlist for the Oscar nominations are. So that's the point at which I can start ticking all the boxes and then seeing what I need to chase down. And I think I've done okay this year based on what people are predicting. Because we've had the Golden Globes and the Critics' yep. Choice Awards, and we've had now the nominations for the 2023 BAFTAs. Should we talk about the nominations in our, uh, our news section? We, we can do, yeah. We should really. It gives me time there. to uh, bring it up on screen and uh, actually make some notes. But <laughs> <laughs> If you remember last week on our um, Mastodon Challenge, we mentioned that if you had a an opportunity to have your own award ceremony, what would be your outstanding films for 2022? So how did we do? Um, we had a, a few little bites across the socials. Um, I expanded it out to also say, you know, it's award season. So if you pick your best film, but also, you know, best actor, best director, best actress, to go for the top four categories. Alex uh, replied with Wakanda Forever for best film. Oh. Actor, Christian Bale. Actress Letitia Wright and director Ryan Coogler. Okay. IMDb Bartlett posted, I was going to follow your format, but then realised I would just be putting after some for everything anyway. Still not seen so, that. <laughs> uh, maybe Kerry Condon could inch out Frankie Corio, but there's not much in it. Yeah, Kerry Condon's performance in Banshees was marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Yeah, absolutely. We commented at the top. time when we reviewed it that yeah. she just really, really stole it. Um, Anna Carey, uh, best film X. Um, actor Benedict Cumberbatch for Multiverse of Madness, Mia Goth 
for X for actress and Ty West for X. See the pattern here that when people have chosen the best film, it gets most of the others yes. included yeah. as well. Well, it's their awards, Andy. They're allowed yeah. to. It's their awards. Beermap movie took the cheats way and told me to look through his past posts for his Beermap posts on the subject. It's like, cheers, mate. It's a bit of research. Everything everywhere, everywhere all at once was his top film. Best actor was Ray Fiennes and actress was Emma Thompson. Didn't have a beer mat for best director because clearly directors aren't important to beer mat movies. And if you're listening, ha. <laughs> yeah, you should call it the beer mats. The beer mats would be a good award name. Ken B, film, Barbarian, good choice. Best actor, Colin Farrell, Banshees of Inishirin. Yeah. Actress, Florence Pugh for Don't Worry Darling. And director, Robert Eggers for The Northman. You can see why I get on so well with Ken, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, this is why we allowed him to marry my sister. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. It's, it's that we get on well with. It's me, yeah, it's me, it's me brother-in-law. Um, but yeah, we've got such a similar taste on a lot of films. And when it comes to the p- picks of the end of the year, we're always really close in them. My ones for the year. And I've got to follow that pattern of just copying, like, whatever you've got for your best film impacts everything. So The Menu is my favourite film. With Ray Fiennes doing a stealing performance. Anya, yeah. Anya Taylor Joy, absolutely magnificent, and Mark Mylod as director. I'm going all out on um, the menu for my top four. Well, mine would have to be uh, Banshees, uh, Colin Farrell for best actor, uh, best film. So I'd have to go with Michelle Yeoh for best actress, best director. So either, either the Daniels or McDonough for, for best director. Tough choice. Very, very tough choice. Martin, McDonough or, or the Daniels. And we also had a couple of late entries to last week's question. Okay. Which was films that people are anticipating this year. Mev's Maze did me a whole list. Infinity Pool, Knock at the Cabin. Oh, yeah, good choice. Cocaine Bear, Scream 6, Super Mario Brothers, Evil Dead Rise, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Barbie, The Exorcist, Bo is Afraid. Have you seen the trailer for Bo is Afraid? No, I've not. Oh, Ari Aster, uh, doing what Ari Aster does in his right. Ari Aster way. The Killer, 65, and bizarrely, Rebel Moon. But we are kind of looking forward to that, just to see whether Zack Snyder can actually do something. I mean, it is, isn't it? And Salty Red Popcorn threw in, agreed with Evil Dead Rise, and also asked, isn't the latest Mission Impossible movie due out this year? Definitely that. Yes. Yep. Yes, it is. So, yeah, I think we're all looking forward to a bit of Mission Impossible. Okay. So this week's Mastodon Challenge is, and now Andy's been to see uh, Babylon. I was going to go, but I heard some very negative reviews, and it kind of it didn't put me off but it's made me it's it's three hours it made me a little bit of trepidation about going to see it but are there in your favorite film list movies that everyone else hates a guilty pleasure out of all the movies that people don't rate but you absolutely adore what is your guilty pleasure movie i don't truck with the phrase guilty pleasure pleasure because i don't feel guilty about anything that i love even though the one that whenever people ask me this, I always reply with Wild Wild West. I love that film. I absolutely have a blast with that film. Mine is the musical version of Lost Horizon, which is a, a one of those films which is, is hated and detested by everybody. But I've got a soft spot for it. I don't know why. I don't know why it appeals to me. I've got the soundtrack album. I sing along with it. And everybody in the world hates this film. And yet, it's a film that I've, I've got a, a soft spot for. So those are ours. What's yours? I mean, I'm sure that over the week, I'll also think of a few others that I gravitate towards that I always get sneered at. And uh, We've all and got I'll, them, Andy. 
And I will take a moment to uh, just also say I still don't get what the fascination you have with Buckaroo Banzai is. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. So let us know via Mastodon and we'll read out your answers next week. But what's on this week's show? Coming up, we have our deep dive into Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle. Andy's got reviews of Tar, which got a wider release in the UK this week. Babylon, which finally landed in all its energetic fury, and Argentina 1985. Together, we'll be talking about last week's big TV release, which was the adaptation of the best-selling video game, The Last of Us. We've got the news, we've got some points of views, and let's start with the news and the box office. So the box office, Andy, I'm pretty much guessing, because there's not much else out there to challenge it that avatar way of water is still our top film so as you'd come to expect avatar the way of water holds on to that top spot in the us taking another 20 million to add to its total puss in boots the last wish knocks megan down a peg uh, claiming 11.5 million this weekend megan in third place took 9.8 million missing the spiritual sequel to searching arrives in fourth place with 9.3 million and a man called Otto claws away another nine million to round off the fifth place. In the UK, Avatar again holds the top spot, another two point eight million added to its total. Megan keeps second place in the UK, one point four million added on. Babylon comes straight in at the third place with one point three two million. Whitney Houston's "I Want to Dance with Somebody" seven hundred sixty six thousand for fourth place, and Roald Dahl's "Matilda the Musical" still drawing in those crowds at the weekends takes another six hundred sixty one thousand this weekend. Megan's doing incredibly well. And of course, when a film does that much business, I'm guessing there's going to be a franchise. So possibly uh, sequel news. Yes, uh, and they've announced, I mean, it's been expected since its opening weekend in the US because it did so strongly. But they finally announced that Megan 2.0, as they're going to be calling it, has a release date set, which is January the 17th, 2025. Uh, The film will see Alison Williams and Violet McGraw reprising their parts from the film. It's unknown yet whether or not the director, Gerard Johnston, is going to be coming back. And given the way that the trims to get the younger age rating have succeeded for the box office, expect this to be designed to be a PG-13 horror next time out, rather than just edited down to a PG-13. Unless they do, you know, an on-set shoot where you're going to get lots and lots of extra clara just to help out home box office. It, It kind of makes sense to me. It was obvious that this was going to get a sequel because yeah. it, it cost twelve million. And we said to make. as much. Cost twelve million to make. It passed a hundred million last week. It, of course, it was going to make it make more. And of course, they'll probably look at starting another TikTok craze with uh, crazy dancers that all the kids love. Which the fact that all the TikTok dance has now gone viral from Megan kind of misses the underlying message that maybe we should stop letting kids just use <laughs> technology all the time. <laughs> But hey, why let subtlety get to people? <laughs> so let's move on from Megan. And Netflix have finally done the good thing and made us all breathe a sigh of relief and confirmed the renewal of Sandman. Yeah. They're not going to necessarily call it season two. They're calling it a continuation of the Sandman world. Mason Alexander Park, who plays Desire, in his words, has added mystery to the plan, saying Netflix has not gone on record calling it season two on purpose. And so I will, from now on, and in the future, in perpetuity, until the end of the universe. We'll not refer to it as season two, until you know we know what it is. I'm guessing, because the the, the comics were just continuous. Yeah, it's, so. it's hinted they're going to go down the volume 
approach yeah. rather than seasons. And a volume might even only be half of a season. So you might the next run might be volume two and volume three. We don't know, but yeah. we'll know once it's made. And also they're going to be dropping in, apparently, other episodes like they did with the uh, the two additional. Little side stories. They're starting shooting in the summer and we'll be tackling the next huge chunk of stories and it'll take however long it takes. And let's just be excited that we'll get some more Sandman. So I didn't see this coming and I'm pretty much sure that you didn't see this coming, which is a, a Tron sequel. Oh, this was my news of the week. This was my biggest excited. Like, I thought it might be. I went really giddy when this finally broke. Now, we've been wanting another Tron film since Tron Legacy came out. Well, I have anyway. Tron Legacy did okay. And they were going to make a sequel. But then Disney got hold of Star Wars and Marvel and basically went, eh, we've already got two big franchises. We don't need to do any Tron. To which all the Tron fan base just like, well, I know I know, I basically just closed off from the world and said, I don't want to live here anymore. Uh, but now they've revealed that the third film is finally moving forward. I can't help but wonder whether this is because Star Wars hasn't really been a success for them on the big screen over the last few films of them. Uh, but Deadline has reported that it's going by the name of Tron Ares and it's targeting August for the start of shooting in Vancouver. So in talks is uh, an actor of huge range, <laughs> Jared Leto, and they're in talks with director Joe Jim Hwanning, who gave us Maleficent uh, to direct. And he also gave us Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, was it Dead Men Tell No Tales? Dead Men Tell No Tales in the UK, Yeah, but it was Salazar's, Salazar's Revenge, Revenge in the US. Yeah. In the US. I'm excited. I mean, Jared Leto is not going to put me off on this because I think if there's any world that he would fit into, it's an artificial world. Um, and he might actually be good <laughs> in this. You know, we don't know until we see it. But this is something, I mean, this has been in various stages of optioning since that second film came out. At one point, Garth Davis was tapped to direct the new film, but that sadly fell through. Let's see how well, it goes. This sounds like it's its closest to... Um... To any other news that we've heard so far. Yep. Uh, we don't know if any of the past stars will be returning or whether it's going to be a whole new story set within the Tron mainframe. Let's wait and see. I know you're giddy. Oh, I'm very giddy. Actor Alec Baldwin and armourer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed are now facing charges of involuntary manslaughter over the shooting death of assistant director Halnia Hutchins on the set of Rust last year. Yeah, I saw that. In addition, assistant director David Halls has signed a plea agreement for the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon and was given a suspended sentence and six months of probation. This was inevitable that at some point there would be charges brought. Alec Baldwin's defence is saying that it's disgraceful that he's being called into it because as an actor, he's not responsible for checking any weapons. That's, right. That's what the armour is there for. And when he gets past a gun, being told that it's cold, then he is to understand that, that he doesn't need to be a good expert. He's to understand that they've done their job. But I think it might be more with the fact that he was also a producer on this film, which means that he has overall responsibility for everything that happens on set, which is why he's getting roped into it. From from my experience on, on films, whenever there's any weapons, it's always down to the armourer. It's their responsibility to check, uh, make sure that they are even handed over safely. There's a call on set for them. That's the way it's it's always worked. Yep. And once it's in a, a, an actor's hand, stay for stage as well. It's always the responsibility of the armorer. That's what they get paid for. So I'm 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 interested to see where this is going to go and and how it's going to play out. I know the Screen Actors Guild have issued a long statement 
which goes into the details of who the responsibility is for firearms laid down by safety bulletin number one provided by the joint industry-wide labor management safety commissions etc etc and they make it clear that it's all on the armorer to be put in charge of all handling use and safekeeping of firearms and the actors are not responsible so it's unlikely that as an actor he'll face a sentencing from this and it's for the court to decide so this i found interesting news and especially it's timing uh, because at the moment I'm teaching about Buster Keaton cool. and there is a new mini-series in development with Rami Malek uh, in place to play uh, the great silent film star, comedian, director, um, the master of the physical stunt, uh, Buster Keaton. Uh, what we do know is that Matt Reeves, uh, the Batman's Matt Reeves, is one of the main producers on it. Therefore, I'm, I'm tempted to think that he might direct at least one episode. Yeah, but Buster Keaton was born into a vaudeville family and quickly became one of silent cinema's most iconic stars. And Rami Malek is such a good casting choice for this. I mean, he's always great yeah. at everything that he does. Ever since he, I first saw him pop up in Mr. Robot, I've latched onto him because I love what he brings to it. But he looks perfect for yeah. the part of Buster Keaton. Dead and delivery that Keaton has in all of his films. He was, uh, I, I think his legacy lives on with, with people like Jackie Chan. Yeah. Uh, even Tom Cruise with, with stars doing their own stunts. And some of the stunts he, he did in an era before stuntmen is, is absolutely a, a, amazing. I'm interested to see it. Uh, we, we don't know a lot about Keaton's life outside of his movies. So um, I know he didn't make the jump into, into talkies. So, yeah, looking forward to knowing more about Keaton. Well, they're currently under negotiations between the studio and biographer James Curtis to secure rights for his book, Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life, to draw upon to make this series from. I think doing a miniseries probably would work better than a film, because a film, when you do a biopic of films, yes, they can be good, but they always have to just focus on one small yeah, section a of time. A TV series allows them to really take the time and really show you all aspects of a career, and his career was uh, quite prominent. Yes. Now, one of his last appearances was uh, in The Twilight Zone. TV series back in the 60s. Sticking with Warner Brothers, and it looks like the Fantastic Beast franchise might not get another film. There's a disappointment, hey? <laughs> oh, I can't say that I'm genuinely disappointed, and I can't say that I'm genuinely not surprised. The third film, Fantastic Beast, The Secrets of Dumbledore, cost $200 million to make and only pulled in a global haul of $406 million, which means that if you take the whole two and a half to three times equation into account, it didn't break profit. It also made it the lowest grossing film of the entire Wizarding World franchise. And it had mixed reviews from critics who said the film was an improvement over the previous ones, but still not very good. David Zaslav in November said on an earnings call that there is potential to do something. He, he seemed quite angry when he was saying that, like, you know, basically, why have we got this huge franchise that we can't manage to tap into? So he wants to do something with the Wizarding World, but it looks like Fantastic Beasts is not going to be it going forwards. So it won't be the end of the Harry Potter franchise. Of course it won't. There will be other stories getting told. But let's be honest. Has anyone really cared about Eddie Redmayne bumbling around following like ridiculous storylines that aren't necessary? You know what would make it interesting for me is that we find out that he's not a wizard at all, but he is in fact Doctor Who. <laughs> and he's gone back to the 1920s, 1930s, because I thought he could have played the best Doctor Who for the big screen that we've seen. I mean, that, that's a crossover waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> you know what made you happy, Andy? Uh, hearing that Tron 
was in development. This has made me happy at Amazon Prime and another TV series. Sex Criminals by Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick's Bitch Planet are reportedly in development for Amazon Prime. Uh, I don't know if you've read them, Andy, but both great books. I've had them on my to-read list for a while because I do like Fraction. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, he's acclaimed 2013 sci-fi uh, romance, quite saucy um, series, Sex Criminals. Uh, it's one of the most banned and challenged comics in the US. I'd love to see it. I don't know quite know how they would do it, but I would love to see it brought to life. Uh, and I'd like to see the, the series finally finished uh, because it's it's been on for some years and uh, we've not got to the end of it. And Bitch Planet is just that kind of grindhouse sci-fi. It deals with women who have been imprisoned for being non-compliant in an off-planet prison called the Auxiliary Compliance Outpost. And uh, the arc moves through time, presenting how the women were arrested in the first place, as well as their various experiences within the prison. So it's kind of a, a, a grindhouse uh, sci-fi version of Oranges and Black. I hope it makes it. Mm. I'd be interested to see uh, seeing how well they did with the boys. It could be the, the perfect, perfect place for them. Um, Amazon seems to be going well for those more adult-focused comic book Adaptations. Yeah, Invincible's back, isn't it? Yeah, Soon. I think it's the right a right streamer to be utilising it because we saw what yeah. Netflix tried to do with uh, the Jupiter's adaptation, and yeah, it didn't hit the mark at all. Uh, I, I, I don't know why they got it so wrong, but hey, they did. But Amazon have been doing great with everything comic booky that they've adapted. So let's let's tick this in the box of marked excited. Uh, following their collaboration on 2021's Pig, Michael Sarnowski. And actor Alex Wolf were going to re- are going to reteam for a Quiet Place Day One for Paramount. This is the prequel to John Krasinski's two Quiet Place films so far, which is going to be set on the first day of the monsters invasion. Unlike the main films, which centers around one family, this is expected to be a larger scale look at events and following numerous characters and a good bit of world building, which is one of the things that we loved on the second film. We loved yeah. that bit of world building, and so this is a great way to build that world even bigger outside of the core franchise before going back to the core franchise. Neither Krasinski nor Emily Blunt are expected to appear in the new film. And there's no reason they should if they're dealing with other characters in a different part of the country. Yep. Um, We will see Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o and Stranger Things breakout Joseph Quinn popping up in this film. I'm excited. I mean, the Quiet Place films are... The first one was blew me away. The second one was enjoyable. Um, It built out the world a bit more and it, it teased where it could go. And I think there's a lot that you can do within this world setting. So I'll always be interested, especially as they're keeping the budget once again low so they can just get away with being creative without studio interference. So we've had the Golden Globes and we've had the Critics' Choice Awards. And now the next big one pre the Oscars is the BAFTA nominations. And they are officially in. Yet the UK's biggest celebration has unveiled its full list of nominees. And the leading the pack with 14 nominations is All Quiet on the Western Front, which was uh, Edward Berger's fresh adaptation of the classic 1929 war film. Yeah, that, that ties it with 2001's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as the foreign language film with the most nominations in BAFTA's history. Uh, not far behind are The Banshees of Inner Sharon, my favourite film of last year, and every, Everywhere All at Once. They both received 
10 nominations each. So they're up for uh, a best film, original screenplay for its directors. That's uh, Martin McDonough and the Daniels. Uh, Michelle Yeoh bagged a nomination for leading actress with Ki Hu Guan and Jamie Lee Curtis earning nods for supporting uh, actor and actress. On Team Banshees, uh, Colin Farrell is up for leading actor Brendan Gleeson and Barry Cohagen, both up for supporting actor and Kerry Condon, as we've said before, uh, was amazing and up for best supporting actress. Yeah, it's, there's some really strong names. It's also interesting to see a few box office smashers, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar Way of Water, have um, scored some recognition as well. Like we said last week, I can't see them winning big awards. They'll be the text, won't they? Yeah, but... You know, Tar has got five nominations, one of which is for Kate Blanchett, who has already won a Golden Globe for her performance in it. And she's hotly tipped to be the front runner in most of the awards coming up. And films like After Sun, The Batman, and Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, have always also made it into the shortlists. Yeah, you've also got Park Chan-wook's Korean thriller Decision to Leave, has him up for director. And we've got Angela Bassett uh, for a heartbreaking turn as Queen Ramonda in Black Panther Wakanda Forever for supporting actress. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis has five nominations, one including for Best Film. So the BAFTAs take place on Sunday the 19th of February and will be broadcast on BBC as usual at 7pm. And we'll be talking about it. Of course. Film adaptation of the Stephen King short story The Boogeyman is going to get a theatrical release on June the 2nd this year via 20th Century Studios. It was initially made as a director Hulu effort but apparently they screened it recently to Stephen King and he gave it a big thumbs up and that's given them confidence to release it for the big screen instead. Um, it, it was one of the shorts in his 1973 short story collection, Night Shift. Okay, read Night Shift, so I must have read it. I don't remember it. Following a man that visits a psychiatrist and recounts how each of his three toddler children over the years was killed in their cribs by sadistic presence that's been following him. It's been years since I last read Night Shift, so I can't remember it, but I'm now probably going to dig out the copy of Night Shift and read through all the short stories again because it seems that all of them are slowly getting tapped for adaptations Um, but the film's official synopsis sounds quite different from that short story follows a 16 year old played by Sophie Thatcher and her younger sister still reeling from the death of their mother who are now targeted by a supernatural boogeyman after their psychologist father has an encounter with a desperate patient in their house. It can't be any different than the lawnmower man (laughs) as an adaptation which had Nothing in common except for there was a lawnmower in one scene. Uh, Venom 3, in his latest Patreon posting via the direct, industry insider Daniel Rickman indicates that filming on the next Venom movie is targeting to run from June to September in England. So come on, you English people, we can shut this production down if we all get together. (laughs) (laughs) Just by sheer will and prayer. That would suggest a a late summer, early autumn release next year for the next sony marvel titled no one really wants and yet people still turn up for as we get towards the rounding up of the news uh, a quick update on jeremy renner yes I, I was reading about that just this morning before we started recording he's now left hospital and is recovering at home after breaking over 30 bones in the snowplow accident that left him hospitalized Goodness. there was a moment a couple of weeks ago where it looked like he might have to have limbs amputated but it looks like they're working past that as he's been posted, keeping people up to date on his Instagram and showing like his physical therapy on both his legs um, that's going on. Uh, And he seems to be making a remarkable recovery. He's constantly sending his love out to all of his fans and thanking for all the, all the thoughts that are being sent his way. 
you know, as he said, these 30, 30 plus broken bones will mend, grow stronger, just like in love and bond with family, with friends deepens. Love and blessings to you all. So, well, I'm glad to see you're getting better, Jeremy. We look forward to a really strong recovery from you. Yeah, good to see you back at work at some point, but but don't rush it. Take the time. Did you read the news of Julian Sands? It it was quite surreal, and I and I don't want to downplay it. But many years ago in Los Angeles, I was working over there on some music videos. I was mistaken for Julian Sands. <laughs> uh, I spent uh, a good sort of 15, 20 minutes trying to convince this woman believed I was Julian Sands, that I wasn't Julian Sands. And if you ever look at Julian Sands around the time of Warlock in particular, there is a passing resemblance between him and me. But yes, this is a story, it, 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 it's quite surreal, shocked me. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, as we all are, we're hoping for a happy outcome, but it, it doesn't look good. At the time of recording, it's now moved on to a helicopter search because the actor who, he loves going hiking, he loves exploring, he loves going out onto wilderness trails. Um, he went missing in the Baldy Bowl area, 50 miles northeast of LA over this past week. The actor, for those who don't know, broke through in the 1980s with the Oscar-nominated Killing Fields. And then, as Lee said, he was in Warlock. He was also in A Room With A View. And he's also popped up in films like Arachnophobia, Boxing Helena, Naked Lunch, Leaving Las Vegas. He's had a quality yeah, career. Yeah, uh, Ocean's 13. We've been catching up with the Ocean's movies at home and he's in Ocean's 13. But he's he, he went completely missing. There's been bad weather conditions which have been slowing down the search for him. And now there's avalanche risks being highlighted in the area that he's assumed to have gone missing. Fingers crossed he turns up yes there's, there's nothing really more to add there's, I mean, there's not really much to add all that we can do is hope that you know this ha- hasn't turned into an absolute disaster but we will update next week when we know more and finally we had a passing this week of edward r pressman the mega producer the mega producer and when you say mega producer they don't come more mega than someone who's worked with oliver stone Werner herzog catherine bigelow Raina werner fassbinder brian de palmer abel ferreira terence malick john millius mary harron amazing record with films such as conan the barbarian the crow bad lieutenants the wall street films american psycho blue steel etc etc this was a producer who had a record and was known for discovering new talent and working alongside them and growing them he was working on the crow reboot when he passed away let's just say without uh, edward r pressman we wouldn't have had the career that arnold schwarzenegger had because of his uh, uh, him developing uh, Conan, the original Conan film. 79, a very good innings and a very good track record of that innings as well. There'll be at least one film out of all of his movies that will potentially be on your top 10 list uh, and you will certainly will have seen it uh, and the list goes on. Uh, and you just mentioned a few, uh, Blue Steel, uh, Year of the Gun, Bad Lieutenant, uh, Andy mentioned the Crow movies, Wall Street, one of my all-time favourites, which we should deep dive, Phantom of the Paradise, Badlands, just so, so many films that he's had. So yes, rest in peace and and leaving behind a legacy of uh, amazing films. And that is this week's The News. Hey Andy, do you know there are the people who listen to this who don't subscribe? What? Why, why would you not subscribe well, to the show? Well, that's what I was thinking. So <laughs> folks, if you're not a subscriber to The Film File, you're missing out 
on so much extra film file goodness. You just don't want to miss out on the latest episode drops. And if you're not subscribed, you might get distracted during the week and not realise. Well, that's right. So what can you do? Well, you can head over to your favourite podcast platform and check out the film file. Hunters down, subscribe and remember to leave a like and leave a comment. Get in touch and let us know what you think about films in general, about the film file and our deep dives and anything else that you want to contribute. Because you can get in touch with us directly. You can chat with us on social media platforms. Just search for Film File UK on social media platforms. We're on there in some kind of guise, mostly on Mastodon, where I love to interact with the film community on there on thoughts and films. Or you can get in touch with us directly via email. Yes, old email, podcast at filmfile.uk will send us a message directly to my inbox. Anything to do with films, entertainment, even video games, because you know that both me and Lee regularly bring video games to the neat things. So, you know, if you've been playing a game recently that you think that we should play and give a try out, get in touch. Anything that you want to get in touch with, just send us that email and we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on No Barriers Radio and that's nobarriersradio.com and listen to the Film File radio show. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. This week's Deep Dive, we're going to be looking at a box office bomb, but a film that Andy and I both enjoy. Based on the long-running 1960s TV series, we're going to talk about 2015's big screen adaptation of The Man from Uncle, brought to you by Guy Ritchie. America is teaming up with Russia. You're CIA's most effective agent. You're the KGB's best. Don't kill your new partner on your first day. Nazis. They've built an atom bomb. Damn. Things could get a little messy. End of the world, that kind of thing. Hold on, cowboy! Absolutely hate working with you. You're a terrible spy. The Man from Uncle. The Man from Uncle is based on a 1960s TV series. And in modern day tradition, it is the big screen adaptation. So far, we've had the Mission Impossible franchise, Star Trek, Wild Wild West, 21 Jump Street, The Avengers, The Fugitive, Charlie's Angels, so many. So there was never any doubt that eventually The Man from Uncle would make it to the big screen. The film starred Henry Cavill, cancelled now Army Hammer, Felicia Vekandor, Elizabeth Debicki, and Hugh Grant. But after waiting all that time, the film was an absolute box office bomb and, and received mixed reviews from the critics. However, and did I like it? Yes. I remember when we watched this typical staff show, sat and watched it and absolutely just fell into the coolness, the vibe of it. It felt very much like a 60s film. It captured right that whole soundtrack. essence of it. And it was just so marvellously put together. I mean, it was bizarre that this didn't find an audience because Henry Cavill was hot from his turn in 2013's Man of Steel. And whilst that had a kind of mixed reception from fans, it was strong enough to really put him on the radar. Guy Ritchie had just had the double hit with the Sherlock Holmes films. And you also had a franchise known as Mission Impossible, which showed that shows from the 60s can work in a modern day era, especially Spy Capers. And yet it flopped. But what went wrong? And I can only put it down to the marketing was terrible for this film. It didn't sell what the film was. And because the period setting being the late 60s, I think that damaged it for a modern audience. Mission Impossible was updated for the era. Mission Impossible is set in the present day. 
Whereas this, it looks like the series from the 60s. And it kind of needed to be because the Cold War aspect is an important, integral part of the whole story. But it damaged the film because it's a hard sell to get a modern audience who don't care about the original series on board with it. Now, that's the element that I liked about it. It had that groovy 60s quality to it. It therefore paid homage to the original series and the original series settings. And you got Henry Cavill's turn as the as Napoleon Solo, capturing Robert Vaughan's style and 60s style perfectly. Now, while I've got an awful lot of love for it, and I, and I think it's, it's a great spy caper, the one thing that was missing was Uncle. Because the, the 60s era uh, had all the gadgets, the, the communicator pen, the sort of coolness of the headquarters. And missing mostly from it was the soundtrack, the Man from Uncle theme, which is, is, which is iconic. But mm. saying that, what I did like about it was the teaming of uh, Army Hammer as Ilya Kuryakin. And Cavell played a great Napoleon solo. But generally, it had an awful lot of style, and and it worked for me. Cavill's approach to Napoleon Solo was so suave and cool throughout the whole film. He barely bats an eyelid at any dangers that they're confronted with, and I love that whole relaxed nature that he's got to him. Whilst you've got Army Hammer's Ilya, who's just a Soviet agent with a lot of anger issues, it's the way that they both play against each other that makes it gel so well. And it's it's the reason why Uncle's not a part of it is this is kind of like the the prequel to The Man from Uncle. Yeah. This is their first assignment together that sets up the Uncle aspect which would follow in any future films. But sadly, we don't never got those future films. It's a film that was optioned to be made back in the 90s around the time Mission Impossible was released. And it went through quite a lot of names before it got to the screen. Tarantino was briefly attached That's at one right. point. He, he opted to make uh, Jackie Brown instead. Yep. Matthew Vaughan was on board. Steven Soderbergh. You know, Soderbergh I get, probably would have delivered exactly the same film that Ritchie's done. Because it doesn't feel very much like a Guy Ritchie film. It feels like a cross between Vaughan and Soderbergh in style. It was almost made in 2012, but the lower budget forced Soderbergh to move on with Richie signing up in 2013. He'd had uh, George Clooney in line to play Napoleon Solo. When Clooney exited, there was chats with people like Gosling, Gordon Levitt, Bale, Fassbender, even Ryan Reynolds and John Hamm. John Hamm would have been a great yeah. Napoleon Solo. But Tom Cruise stepped into it. And if it wasn't for the Mission Impossible franchise, it would have been a film with Tom Cruise as Napoleon Solo. Not sure whether Tom Cruise would have made a good Napoleon Solo. I, I think the, the setting in the 60s worked for it because it was always about cold war arms races it was always about cool cars it was always about uh girls looking like go-go dancers it it needed to be kept in there there were some scripts there's a couple of scripts that i've read where they updated it and and once they updated it that kind of sense of fun was missing that you got from the 60s so i think richie did the right thing by keeping it in the yeah. in the sixties, and uh, as I said, while I miss sort of the gadget side of of Uncle, I think if that had been in, I would have had that super slick, you know, sort of the weaponry that the Uncle agents used mm. to use. Then I think it, it it might have set it aside from just being this cool looking spy caper. I agree that the sixties setting is kind of essential. Yeah, otherwise, without that Cold War aspect. They would have to find some other forced reason for there to be some underlying antagonism between your two leads. It would have just been a generic modern day spy yes. film. I think the setting gives it its identity and the music as well. That definitely gave it the identity. 
I love the soundtrack for this. Yeah, it's I so had it. Good. I was playing it for it's ages. So cool. it, yeah. It's a, a great mix. Richie's use of split screen and all the 60s kind of gimmicks that you got from um, films of that era make it feel, like I said, as though it was made in the 60s with a modern kind of like technical upgrade. Can't go on without talking about like the support cast. I mean, you've already mentioned um, Elizabeth Debicki, but Hugh Grant and Jared Harris popping up in this. Yes. Absolute delight. I mean, Jared Harris pops up because he'd already worked with Richie on the Sherlock Holmes films. It was one of those like, let's get you involved. And Hugh Grant, since the since this film, has now worked with um, Richie on further films, notably in The Gentleman and in the next film that he's got coming out. Every member of the cast is great. And the way that the story weaves as well, and then occasionally, like it when it reveals what something was a minor thing, and it'll flash back just briefly, just to make you go, "Oh, I missed that." Well staged, well set up. I had a lot of fun with this, and revisiting it this week, I had so much fun. I was chuckling away, particularly the scene when um, Ilya's in a speedboat being pursued, whilst uh, Napoleon Solo's just sat in the truck, casually eating someone's lunch before he finally works out how to how he's going to get them out of it. Marvellous. I love how cool it all plays. And the series that it was based on was that 60s style. So the series, The Man from Uncle, which starred the late, great Robert Vaughan and David McCallum, who both worked as secret international counter-espionage agents for this law enforcement agency called Uncle, started back in 1964 and ran through to 1968. Uh, It was originally developed by Ian Fleming and was just going to be called Solo. However, uh, a law firm that represented the James Bond movie producers Saltzman and Broccoli demanded an end to the use of Fleming's name in connection to the series. So the character Napoleon Solo or Mr. Solo at the time of filming was changed to the man from Uncle and brought in a, a sidekick character that made a huge star out of Scottish British actor David McCallum as the super cool Russian Ilya Kuryakin, who originally just had one brief role, but the relationship between him and Vaughan was so strong that they became the stars of the series. Now, yes, the show is campy. Yes, it did get silly at more than one uh, uh, occasion, but it was a great, great series. If you can ever find them, and they did put them together into film versions where they took two or three episodes and cobbled them together into, into movies. It's such a great series. And I love 60s spy movies. Uh, that Uncle and Our Man Flint, they were they were just awesome. They are my favourite period of, of, of TV. I remember sitting and watching these as a kid on reruns on BBC Two, I believe they were. Yeah, they used to have them on Saturday mornings at some point as well. That's when I really discovered them. We were both fans of the franchise anyway before we went into this film. But if you've never seen the old show, give this film a check. It did pick up a lot more of a presence on its home release than what it got at the cinema, which resulted in it looking likely to eventually get a sequel. And as far yeah, as close as 2017, there were still talks of a sequel. However, in the past few years, the revelations and allegations against Army Hammer have kind of closed that idea down for now. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see a green lighting on another Man From U.N.C.L.E. film, either connected or completely unconnected to this one within the next few years, because Mission Impossible is showing once again that spy films are all the rage, especially when it's an established property. I'd like them to to put together a new Man From U.N.C.L.E. TV series, but please set it in the 60s, because that's what, what the height of coolness was. That was the the height of uh, of style, and, and this is what that, that era presented was. 
that sort of uh, slight campiness, which we you could get away with within that setting. If you want to watch Man From U.N.C.L.E., the series or the uh, movie, where can you find them, Andy? None of them for free uh, for the series. The film you can find on Amazon Prime. Um, it's currently part of the Prime subscription. For the series, you can pick up the box sets of the four seasons from Google Play or Amazon Prime and probably through other online retailers as well. Fourteen ninety nine for a season. Oh, that's not bad, that's is bad. it? That's not bad at all. So that would be a great little uh, a great little project for me this year to work through another sit TV show and ignore all the million, millions of TV shows that I keep meaning to get up to date with. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have another deep dive for you next week. And now it's time for this week's reviews. And Andy has seen a film that I was very interested in seeing. And then I started to read the reviews. And I'm still intrigued on seeing this, but the reviews slightly, slightly put me off. And I'm a huge fan of the director. So, Andy, convince me otherwise as you tell me about Damien Chazelle's Babylon. In a world built on dreams. Let's go! How far would you go for yours? I'm going to take it. Are you ready? You got it. Here's the twist. I'm in so much trouble, Manny. (laughs) You have no idea what's next. I'm going to make it on my terms, not theirs. What you waiting for? You ready? 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 We are going to be more than they ever bargained for. Babylon. Only in theaters. Damien Chazelle's latest release is a music-infused look at the era of Hollywood when silent movies were superseded by the advent of the talkie, focusing on the stars and creators whose lives are impacted by the transition. If that sounds a tad familiar in a singing-in-the-rain manner, then rest assured that Chazelle knows this, and indeed the film references that film in smart ways as part of the journey. The opening half hour before the title card of Babylon actually flashes up on screen is a whirlwind of energy and chaos as we're plunged into the midst of a debauched Hollywood party with Manny Torres, played by Diego Kelva, as our entry point. Manny is a Mexican immigrant with ambition to work in movies who joins the fray when he transports an elephant to the party and becomes entwined with the lives of those attending, particularly Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, an aspiring star who hasn't landed her big role yet, and Jack Conrad, Brad Pitt, one of the hottest names in the silent movie world. Through the wild ride of the party, we're introduced to all the primary cast and most of the secondary, as well as the seedier side of the industry, where the life of an overdosed young actress is merely an inconvenience to the celebrations. Nellie snags her first role as a result of the overdose, whilst Manny finds himself taken under the wing of Jack, and the pair start their journey into the lights and glamour of the movies. From that point on, we are shown the chaotic nature of the silent movie making, before the talkies come along and the whole industry changes. Changes which many struggle to keep up with, as the film thrusts us through the years, offering barely a chance to breathe and reflect on each chapter. The end result is a film over three hours long that serves as a loving tribute to the magic and dreams of cinema with a focus on the lives and souls destroyed by the Hollywood machine in the name of profit and fame. Chazelle packs the film with energy and music, making for a wild ride from start to finish with some laughs, tears, moments of poignant reflection and shining performances from all the players. Pitt is perfectly positioned as a screen legend who struggles to transition in the new era. Gene Smart plays a sensationalist journalist in a marvellously parasitic manner. Lee Jun Lee is seductively strong as Lady Fei Zhu, a cabaret singer who also scribes the intertitles for the silent movies. Whilst Calver, as our entry point into this world, is relatable as the outsider drawn into this world of corruption. 
But it's Margot Robbie who steals the film from underneath everyone's feet. Her role as Nellie is a tour de force of self-destructive energy from start to finish. Her trajectory, signposted early on when she's nicknamed Wild Child for her on-screen and off-screen behaviours. The tragedy underneath, all the outward party girl nature, can be witnessed throughout, with Robbie conveying sadness covered up by explosive exuberance so darn well. The music from Justin Hurwitz and represented primarily on screen through Jovan Adepo's jazz trumpet player Sidney Palmer is toe-tappingly compelling and conveys the chaos of the events throughout. By the time the third act arrives, bringing with it a disturbingly creepy performance by Tobey Maguire as a mob boss James McKay, it does almost feel that the film is overstaying its welcome. But then, within minutes, you're caught up in the new addition to the story and the remaining time flies by. By the closing moments, I was certain I'd enjoyed the film, but to what degree, I wasn't sure. Letting the tornado of events settle on me for one day, I realised that not only did I really enjoy it, but I can't wait to experience that roller coaster ride again. So Andy, why do you think it's had such a critical bashing? The structure of the film is all over the place. It's not got a structured story in there. It's moments of different stories all combined together. And I think that maybe it does outstay its welcome to some people. For me, I was captivated throughout. Every time that it felt like it could have ended and it kept going for another half hour, an hour, etc., I was drawn back in. But I can get how some people might have gone, this is getting too much now. Did it need to be over three hours? Possibly not. And I think that's probably its biggest problem, is that with a lack of a, lack of a solid story, it's all about the feelings more than anything else. And I think that worked, it, worked against it. Okay, what else do you have for us? Recently won a globe for it. Kate Blanchett starred in Tar, which I watched this week. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she at last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. Charting the downfall of the fictional composer Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett, Todd Field's film draws you in with a superb character study packed with engaging and very real dialogue in a world setting that feels so real, you end up checking whether this is actually a biopic of an actual composer. Lydia is a composer and the first ever female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, with several upcoming projects including an autobiography and an upcoming live recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Around her, she depends on her personal assistant Francesca and her wife and concertmaster Sharon. With her life and career at a peak, the only way from this point, is down. And when legal pressure, after revelations from a former accordion player, Krista, are brought to light, and the introduction of a new cello player, Olga, whom Lydia becomes besotted with, the downward spiral of self-destruction begins. This is Blanchett's film throughout, and Todd Field wrote the part with her in mind, stating that had she not accepted the role, it likely would never have been made. And you can see why. Blanchett is one of the finest inhibitors of characters on screen today, and you stop seeing the actress within moments of the film starting and genuinely believe that you are seeing the character. Initially easy to like, Lydia's complicated downwards trajectory still demands some pity and never turns the audience totally against her, 
Merely, she is represented as being a severely flawed individual who you continually wish to see redeem herself. With no wasted moments on screen, everything that occurs, no matter how mundane it seems on the surface, matters, and it has consequences. And this is a film that carries along well, almost demanding a revisit to pick up on any small nuances that you may have missed on first watch. When you get to a stage in a film where you forget that you're watching a work of fiction and find yourself so caught up in the lives being presented, you know you've seen something special and unique. This deconstruction of personality is worthy of the awards attention it's been garnering. And your final film this week is Argentina 1985, which I have heard of. And again, it's on the list. Based on real events, Argentina 1985 follows the events surrounding the trial of the Juntas, which saw the previous military dictatorship brought to justice for the atrocities they inflicted on the Argentinian population. Led by prosecutors Julio Stazera and Luis Acampo, the team of inexperienced non-lawyers work on uncovering the crimes and collecting the evidence, facing the pressures of the courtrooms, but also the threats to their lives that come from the old guard and those who supported them. If you don't know your Argentinian history, then don't worry, because the early scenes serve up all the information you're going to need about the regime change that occurred only two years prior to the start of the events of the film. Once delivered, the film swiftly moves ahead at a pace until the courtroom scenes become the focus, and it's at that point at which the film becomes emotional, distressing, engaging, compelling and essential viewing. The presentation of testimonies by those who have been captured and tortured by the junta are presented in a non-exploitative manner and will horrify you with the detail, especially that from Adriana Calvo, played powerfully by Laura Paradis. Her testimony is heartbreaking, and it demonstrates the full abuse of power that the dictatorship served. Never slowing down, this is essential viewing. And whilst it would be easy to dismiss such events of the past as never happening again, there are moments within that are reflective of our own times, highlighting how easy it is for the corrupt to gain power, and how we should all strive to ensure they never succeed. So as promised at the beginning of the programme, we're going to give you our review of the latest video game adaptation to television or film. But this is, of course, The Last of Us. Ever kill one? Yeah. Is it hard? Knowing they were people once. I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves. You don't tell anyone about your condition. We try to keep you alive. You're not immune from being ripped apart. Frank, we will never have friends because there are no friends to be had. Just because life stopped for you, doesn't mean it has to stop for me. There's no halfway with this. We finish what we started. So it landed on HBO on Sunday and we had the first episode on Sky Atlantic on Monday. It's one of the very few shows I have been so excited to watch some amount of trepidation because as i said in in our neat things how much i love the game after spending over 30 hours getting to know the characters in the game i was nervous i'll be honest andy uh would it Ooh. 
reach up to expectation? Would it be a straightforward adaptation? Would there be more to the world? And I think the title that The Last of Us has, has been given, which is this is the best game adaptation ever. I think lives up. Yeah, it surprisingly solidly sticks to the core story, whilst also doing its own thing on a few things. But let's point out, you, because it's been such a, a well-received game and a much-loved game, you can't muck about with the plot or, or no. take away from sort of the intentions of what the game is about. There's no need to take away from the elements of the game as well, because the story of the game is so cinematic in itself. I sat and watched this with. Uh, my wife and my daughter, who neither have played the game. And so there's me, and it's one of those, this is the same as when we were watching Sandman, that I know what's going to happen. And I can't help but getting like emotional, wielding up to things. And there's that, I don't want to drop spoilers in this for people who've never played the game and haven't seen the first episode yet, but there's one turning point before the time jump that when playing it as a game, it proper shocked and traumatised. And I was welling up before it started to happen, watching this. And at the end of the episode, my daughter turned to me and she said, I can't believe that that happened. And it was like, yeah, now you know why I got so attached to this game. And I think that's a great thing is that it's so representing the game so well that I can now direct people to play the game. You really need to play the game if you enjoyed the series, because you, if you enjoyed the TV show, you're going to get a lot from the game. So it does follow the plot uh, so far to the letter but what it's done very cleverly is expanded the world around it now we meet the world that joel and his daughter inhabits uh for much longer than we do in the game because you mm. know they are different mediums if you were playing this as a game you you wouldn't want to spend all that time seeing their day before it all all the the downfall of humanity kicked off so we get to know and the, therefore the heartbreak is is more so and, and we're going to make spoiler free as as possible and we get to meet a very kind of different joel who's still joel later on after the infestation uh, they're now living in a quarantined uh boston which is uh, again we we were introduced to it in a very very different way the way that we met ellie played by bella ramsey mm. we just meet ellie in the uh in the game and and now we get to see a little bit of a backstory to that to that meeting and the intentions of what the characters are there to do is slightly slightly altered but it's all about pushing the series forward and and letting them play because game playing is immersive and and we are spectators in in the tv show one touch that i loved is the opening scene with the panel show talking about fungal viruses and how it could become a thing in the future and that was chilling in and of itself because everything that it says in there is scientifically feasible now yes. and makes you think, actually, yeah, all the things that happen in The Last of Us are a complete possibility. It really sets it and grounds it in a sense of reality. Whereas, you know, Walking Dead, it's zombies. It's not real. Come on. Anyone who really believes that zombies will start walking the earth, come on, grow up. But something like The Last of Us is something that's scientifically possible. And I think that's what makes it so chillingly more disturbing and more immersive is because you can you can believe that this is a possibility so far and it's been hinted at the the tv series captures the uh, amazing look of the game the devastating beauty of, of the game so uh, the mood of it you know the collapsed skyscrapers the nature taking back the uh, the cities um it feels 
it feels absolutely connected. I didn't feel at, at any point that I was watching a cheap adaptation of a game that I love so much. I was watching uh, a series which had been rendered in its own unique way and and delivered as perfectly as you can with this story. I mean, we're on an episode one. Mm. Interesting thing about episode one is that the second part of episode one, once we get to Boston, was going to be episode two. But the network believed that we needed to meet Ellie because that's the heart of what this show is about, the Ellie-Joel relationships, and which was the heart of the game. So I'm, I'm desperately looking forward to... Uh, episode two same here it looks like it's going to be a, a great series and as we reported last week they have no intention of dragging it out unnecessarily it will keep tight it will keep the story and once they run out of the story from the games that's when it'll end and i'm glad for that because i don't want it to become like the walking dead no what we will do is we will come back every few weeks and tell you how we're getting along with things rather than do a week by week review so andy what else is happening out there in the Great big world of entertainment. So at cinemas this week, unwelcome releases. Uh, for people who like Billie Eilish, uh, her live performance is on this weekend across the UK. The Fablemans releases, that's top of my list to watch. And Plane, which is the new Gerard Butler actioner, also releases. Um, on Now TV and Sky, if you really want to suffer it, Jurassic World Dominion lands this week. No, no, I don't. I certainly don't. Netflix give us Lockwood & Co, which is based on the books and brought to life by Joe Cornish, which it's a series that sees a girl with extraordinary psychic abilities join two gifted teen boys at a small ghost hunting agency to fight the many deadly spirits haunting London. Got my eye on this one. One which I'll probably check out, but I've got not got a lot of anticipation for, is You People. Eddie Murphy and Jonah Hill clash when two LA millennials from different backgrounds fall in love with a new take on the old guess who's coming to dinner slash meet the parent shtick. Apple TV, I've been keeping an eye out for this one. The TV series Shrinking, written by Bill Lawrence um, and Brett Goldstein and Jason Segel, lands this week following a grieving therapist, Jason Segel, who starts to break the rules and tell his clients exactly what he thinks. Could be interesting. So plenty to get involved with after you've listened to this show. And that's the end of this week's show. And as ever, we're going to tell you our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week uh, that we're going to share with you. And Andy, as ever, goes first. I've been playing this on and off over the past month, and I've been wanting to bring it as a neat thing multiple times. But there's so many things in the neat things each week that I'm just having to cherry pick. But I'm finally going to say that Goat Simulator 3 is not only a neat thing, it's an awesomely neat thing. If you've never played Goat Simulator, the first game came about by accident. The developers of it were creating a physics engine and a you know a sandbox engine to be able to practice things. And they realized that there was lots of glitches in it, including the fact that the goat, whenever it licked something, the graphics went all glitchy and the tongue would stretch and like its legs would go in weird directions. And they had so much fun with how stupid it was, they turned that into a game. And the original Goat Simulator game had about four different expansions. And it would you'd just basically freeform, go around, cause havoc, cause mayhem lick things, throw things into space, whatever. So when they came to making a sequel, they thought, right, let's give it some structure. Let's give it some campaigns and some quests. And let's call it Goat Simulator 3. Why 3? Why not 2? Well, apparently the development team, again, showing how immature they all actually are, argued as to whether to call it number 2 or number 4. And so they settled on the middle for number 3. And it's so much fun. There's a structure to it. You have to raised certain towers and open doors within by performing so many tasks 
It's got a multiplayer aspect in there that is great. Me and my daughter mostly have been playing this. I accidentally started playing it when she wasn't in the living room and she came thundering down the stairs 10 minutes later and went, how dare you play this without me? It's a fun game of just like mayhem, chaos, and so many comedy references to so much pop culture stuff that you, can, you can't help just get immersed into it. I have loved Goat Simulator 3. I've completed the main storyline. I'm now going through and mopping up all the side quests. And then I'll probably just start again from scratch because I've had such a good time with it. Well recommended. Quite cheap to pick up on all systems. Give it a shot. Andy, did you ever get into season one of Slow Horses on Apple TV Plus? I didn't. I, it, it's on my watch list to get round to. Uh, series one was one of my neat things. It stars the great Gary Oldman as Jackson Lamb, the boss of Slough House. And Slough House is a, a rundown part of London. And it's where if you are an MI5 agent, you're sent because you screwed up so badly, you can't continue with your regular duties and you are sent off to this uh, rundown, dilapidated crew of, uh, of people under the uh, auspicious eye of Jackson Lamb, who is rude, filthy, chain smoking, drinking, perfectly played by Gary Oldman. So, and this is a big name working on TV. Uh, series one was an, an absolute uh, fantastic series and um, unmissable. And series two so far is proving to be just as good. Story starts with an old chap standing behind the counter of a Soho sex shop, minding his own business until he recognizes a passerby and immediately sets off on pursuit, following him on a, a railway train, onto the train, then onto a bus and then starts to feel unwell and drops dead. But he types a single code word into his phone and he hides the device. And that's when the slow horses head into this intertwined mystery to do with ex-Russian agents. Uh, it's funny. It's an action series. It's a spy series. It never forgets that there's humour at the heart of it. It presents both the multi-million pound houses of London as well as council flats and back streets and imports and export businesses and uh, um, canal towpaths. Uh, it's fantastically acted by Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas as Lamb's opposite number in the proper MI5. This works so well because at the heart of it is just a great British series and the, the kind of thing... Almost the opposite of what we do with The Man From U.N.C.L.E. This is a very different take on spies. Very believable. Quite grubby in places. And has a great deal of humour to it. So if you've not seen Series 1 and you're not on Apple, my biggest suggestion is, is get the seven-day free trial. Watch this. And Ted Lasso. Uh, watch Season 1 of this. And you will not be disappointed. And then check out the books. Because that's my next plan. Uh, the Slow Horses books written by Mick Heron. And that's my plan as soon as I finish watching series two. And that, folks, well, that's it for this week. Another film file down. 151 episodes. I know what, Andy, I can't wait to episode 152. Yeah, well, you're going to have to wait because we're not recording it right now. We're going to have to be uh, back here, same time, same place, seven days from now. Next week, we will be bringing the rundown of what the Oscar shortlist is as part of the news. And... As we get closer to the actual Oscars, we'll start to make our predictions as to what we think will win each of them. Uh, we're not going to encourage people to go out and place bets because uh, we don't encourage gambling. But I will be placing bets because I always do. 
yeah, uh, another week. I'm going to try and catch up with you this week if I can, Andy, and uh, look forward to whatever's coming out. I still hotly anticipated for me is the, the next Ant-Man film. I, I'm really looking forward to it in a way that I, I didn't think I would be. Um, so can't wait for that one. Can't wait to yeah. be back again next week for another show. See you later, my friend. Can't do the show without you. All right. Well, yeah, because I'm recording. <laughs> That's right. And Andy, <laughs> just so you know, this is not the Russian way. Bye, film geeks. And this is our theme tune. <laughs> Here comes Bod. I'm with this girl, and I remember going. We're doing the. If you had a theme tune, what would your theme tune be? And I was going, oh, mine would be, uh, I don't know, theme from Ocean's Eleven. And she went, oh, mine would be the theme from Bod. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But, oh, okay. Don't quite know what that means. All right. And. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 That'll work. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I, did, I did have some notes on I this. I thought that was going to be your um, uh, going to be your final answer, just yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did have some notes on this. I'm just scrolling up and down to find them. Yeah. Uh, let's get into... Let's get into it. Um, into doing... Get down with the sound. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was listening back last week to the uh, outtakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not sending me to the cooler. <clears throat> Need to do a, a different kind of voice. Maybe a more. Yeah, I could, more. yes. <laughs> this week we'll be talking about predominantly. I can't do my Predominantly, we're going to be doing. This week we're going to be talking about a whole series of films. <laughs> going back to the very beginning, <laughs> as it was. Yes. The name's Bond. James Bond. Right. Double O my. <laughs> okay, let's uh let's do the next half of the show. Let's jump right in there with the next hey, half of the show. Splendid. Splendid. <laughs> um I'm gonna change and format it up a little bit. <clears throat> Ooh, wiki wiki wiki. Uh film file podcast, which was presented again by you and I. Is it? It wow. is. <laughs> as if they, as if we didn't know. <laughs> and this bit's not working out quite the way I thought it was going to. <laughs> We'd love to interact with you in many, that sounds so wrong. We'd love to hear from you oh, and I'd your thoughts. I'd love to interact with you. <laughs> oh, let me interact with you. <laughs> it sounds like uh, we've entered the incel matrix. I'm going to interact with you. <laughs> <laughs> Stick around. Uh, I forgot, I've got, I forgot the whole. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, oh, no. So we know. Matron. No, stop us about. Stop it. Stop having, you're having a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop just, messing around. Well, let's just do um, uh, uh, impressions and then put that on the the challenge <laughs> who was that and people go who was I have that no idea they'll sound name like, these 10 impressions they'll sound like william shatner they all sound like william see i convinced myself shatner. the other day that i did a fantastic christopher walken but i'm not sure now <laughs> yeah it, it probably sounds more like will, will shatner yeah <laughs>
Andy, what else is out there? If anybody else is not watching The Last of Us or going to the cinema, um, what? That, again, Andy, that was absolute rubbish. <laughs> Ant Man is Quantum of Solace. I'm going to say <laughs> Ant Man, Quantum of Solace. That's a whole <laughs> different film. <Yeah. laughs>